Welcome to Regular Tech. This is our second episode of 2023 with me, Niklas Beer Lumblad, and... And with me, Richard Allen. So, uh, we thought that we would step back a little bit and talk about the regulation more generally this time around. And specifically, what we wanted to talk about was the notion of regulating emerging technologies. This magical, wonderful world of emerging technologies that are still quite new and unknown, but have generated so much attention that they end up under the regulator's eye. What, what can we say generally about the regulation of emerging technologies, or perhaps even regulation of technology overall? I think we can take a long view and I, and I think the long view shows us that a technology is developed it need not be an information technology it could be cars or back in the day trains or canals or, you know somebody develops something that is a new way of doing something uh, that is valuable to humankind and typically that thing is developed it goes out there into the world and then after a period of time not in all cases but in many cases government steps in and government, I think the reason they're going to step in is, is because the technology impinges on two things, the, which, are, which are absolutely the core functions of government. The first is the safety of people. I mean, if government exists to do anything, it's to keep people safe. Uh, and we can argue about who it's keeping safe from whom, that's politics. But, but the core notion is that a government exists to keep people safe from whatever threats there are. And the second sort of key function of government is to distribute available resources. You know, there's a sort of finite pot of resources available and government regulates effectively to make sure or to, to manage how those resources are shared from, you know, the king or queen has everything <laughs> through to we tax you 80% and distribute it all to everybody in some kind of socialist paradise and then all points in between. So keeping people safe and distributing resources are those, those sort of core functions, I think, that drive regulation. Whether or not a technology becomes a target depends on the extent to which it impacts in both those areas. Right. And so, so uh, if you think about those two main objectives of government, people, pe keeping people safe and distributing resources, you, you could even you could sort of generalize them down to a single factor, which is what the German philosopher Hans Jonas said when he talked about technology, which is that all use of technology is the exercise of power. At, yes. some, at some level, the use of technology shifts power around in society. When you get an information technology, suddenly you can inform others, you can communicate in ways that can change power patterns or if you get a car, you can suddenly travel around the country and you can do all kinds of things that shift power dynamics as well. So uh, there's, there's something about power here too, right? The, yeah. the distribution of power in society. Yeah, and I think, I think the wealth often is a proxy for power. Uh, um, the harm notions that we have often are you know, expressed in terms of uh, power of one individual over another. That somebody uses a technology to... to dominate to to exert control or in some way damage someone else so yes you're right it's very much about the power dynamics and and i think that's all, that is an interesting notion because i think the again people say why regulate this technology not that technology or when will you regulate technology at what point does does a government want to regulate and essentially it's when it becomes powerful <laughs> so if a technology is trivial in, in power terms, if it if it if it, it has no significant impact on society, it may never be regulated. There are yeah. all kinds of things we use in our daily lives that government can't be bothered to regulate. But as soon as something becomes important, uh, critical, powerful, to use that language, the more powerful it becomes, the more likely it is to attract the attention of government and to be seen as a target for regulation. And, and, and there is, you, you talked about the when there, and I think we should double click on that and try to think more mm. about it, because there's something really interesting in the when. If you go back to 1994, when the internet was young and an emerging technology yes. of its own, you got the Bangerman report in Europe, which essentially said, let's not do anything, let's have this technology grow, let's enable, let's make sure that we have the conditions of growth in place. This is a technology that potentially can generate tons of jobs and a lot of Economic growth, and and the 1994 Bangerman report is is something that is in stark contrast to what we now have in yes. 2023, almost uh, what is that uh, 40 years later. Um, uh, what you end up with is is something very different. But I have to think that there are stages from the Bangerman report to the DSA. Yes. What are the stages? How how would you sort of pick this apart? This process that you go through. Yeah. So, so I think you you have a first stage, which is a technology growing and becoming widespread. And then you'll get a second stage, which is now it's become widespread. 
are we concerned that there are aspects that are either impacting on safety or impacting on economics? And is there a gap in the regulation? And then the third phase is let's create the regulation. So if we look at social media as an interesting example, because social media in some senses was entirely new. There wasn't a sort of analogue for it previously where individuals could you know, broadcast to audiences of millions prior to the arrival of social media. Broadcasting to millions was the preserve of um, traditional media organisations, a very small subset of very powerful actors in society. But this new phenomenon arrives you know, sort of 2005 onward, let's say, sort of early MySpaces and things like that. There's a period, I think, of around 10 years, 2005 to 2015, where various iterations of social media start to become really quite well distributed. And by the time we get to around 2015, they're big, they're everywhere. Uh, and then we hit 2016, I keep going on about them, but those critical elections in the yeah. United States and in, in the U United Kingdom, where people suddenly sort of saw these as very significant political forces. It was the moment when it was like, my God, social media is really critical. And then you have a period really then 2015 to 2020, a sort of five-year period where it's a given, I think, in political circles. You and I would have talked to yeah. politicians. They're all like, something must be done, something must be done. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's burning, burning platform time. We're going to do something. And then the legislation itself starts to emerge around 2020 and then has taken three, four years to kind of get onto the statute book. And probably that process will be completed by about 2025. The Digital Services Act in, in Europe the Online Safety Bill in the UK, the Digital uh, Markets Act in Europe, all of these things sort of emerged in the first half of the 2020s and will take a sort of five-year period to, to become fully implemented. So that sort of cycle, it's not always that length of time, but I think those phases are pretty consistent. A growth phase, a, oh my God, something must be done phase, and then, right, a hard work of crafting the regulation kind of and then implementing it phase. Could you argue that there are two different kinds of sequences here though? Because I think that's true for social media legislation like the DSA or the DMA to some extent, which is not pure social media but mm. still. But then if you if you go back to ninety four and you start charting out what happened around ninety four, in ninety six you have the discussions around the WIPO copyright treaty. Because the copyright holders and the, the copyright and the creative industries essentially decided that something was happening here the internet that they weren't quite happy with and it, it was redistributing power um, across the creative ecosystem in a way that it concerned them. So you get the WIPO Copyright Treaty in 1996. In 1998 you get the DMCA, the Digital Millennium mm. Copyright Act. And so so copyright seems to have changed faster than the, the kind of sequence that you outline. And arguably privacy that comes in 95, uh, the Data Protection Act, is driven also a little bit by the internet as an emerging technology. And that then gets updated by the GDPR and it seems as if that legislation also happened faster. So, so there's like, there, there seems to be a difference between legislation that is targeted on the phenomenon as such vertically, which where you have mm. this long timeline that you describe, and then the updating of existing legislation. Is, there, yes. is that a meaningful difference? I think so. I think the copyright example is interesting. It was a more compressed timescale. They were kind of first out of the traps to, get, to sort of get their regulatory piece of the action once the internet started and i think that was reflected two things one is their incredibly powerful lobby <laughs> I mean, they're they extraordinarily well organized too, yeah, which i think is well part organized. of their power right? exactly and then to your to the, is your other point that the fact that there was an existing body of law so what they were able to say was we're just rolling over existing law onto the internet so they had they had ready-made sort of principles to roll out saying you know, you all agreed that copyright material needs to be protected in different ways. You've all agreed that if somebody makes a pirate copy of a CD or a DVD, then, you know, we, we're entitled to take action against them. All we're asking you to do is extend the same principle to the internet was sort of their, their starting point. So I think that gave them a different point, whereas actually, if you look at something like social media, a lot of the traditional news media is not regulated in the same way. So it wasn't a question of saying, you know, we just we've got something here, and we just want you to extend it. It's they're creating actually an entirely new regulatory framework for social media. And certainly in the UK example, it explicitly excludes traditional media. So so far from it being an extension of existing regulation, it's an entirely new model that is intended to apply differently. <clears throat> but that that question of speed is an interesting one. The, the one that fascinates me is around cryptocurrencies. Yeah. 
where to me it appears that the regulations are moving very very slowly actually given that you know, there is a lot of regulation around financial services that's already there but somehow we do seem content to allow crypto to to grow to quite a significant and meaningful extent it will potentially shift the balance of power and and create new kinds of safety risks but i think there's a sort of wait and see approach you know we haven't yet reached the threshold where there's enough harm or enough shift in the power dynamics to regulate except at the margins although i think that may change very very quickly now maybe over the next year or two we're going to see you know quite a significant shift in that direction and it also that that takes us to another function of uh, legislation for emerging technology because if i was running a crypto company today i said yes please god regulate because that would create trust in the industry that it actually was more than than just the the kind of horrors that sam bank uh, manfred yeah. <laughs> generated that it had a seriousness to it because it was regulated the the sort of act of regulating is also the conferring of a certain like imprimatur that this is a this is a real thing and so isn't there an argument that at least to some degree regulation can help an emerging technology to commercialize or to capture the potential value yeah, inherent? I, I think there's although there you know certainly the early founders of any technology I, I think it's fair to say that they can make the most money <laughs> if it's left wide open. I mean, there are there are like super profits to be made, and crypto would be another example of that. That yes, there would be money in a regulated crypto market, but nothing like the the sort of opportunities for some massive enrichment that take place while it's unregulated. Um, actually, just to, to to go for like a historical example of this lagging regulation way back in the day that you know and part of what government does is you know regulates the way that you can bring in resources to your country mm-hmm. way back in the day um the united kingdom was was uh, expanding its overseas empires in the subcontinent of india and uh when they did that there was a thing called the east india company that, mm. that sort of created this mega wealth and it was only later that these private entities were brought under government control and one of the reasons was there were just super profits to be made as long as it's a private company exploiting. I think mean, you know, the early British colonies in the United States were similar. You, know, you, you have this period of colonization of a new space where you can just suck out all of the resources and be pretty like vile, actually. I think it's probably the right description. And then when regulation comes along, yes, it, it does create this stability, but at the same time, it imposes some constraints it means that things are done in a more orderly way and typically the super profits now become mere extraordinary profits <laughs> well i think there are two ways there of regulation actually i think that for the east india company to work it needed to have things like legislation around the corporate entities so they could set up as yeah. a concern it needed to have such a thing as some kind of legal dominion over the indian subcontinent which was established in law uh, it needed to have the contractual rights to deal with that so it needed some kind of legal infrastructure which is where i sort of feel the crypto industry is that it needs some kind yeah. of legal infrastructure in order to make those mega profits and then you're right then there's like a second wave of regulation where the way you uh, act in that particular prepared system uh, is regulated and that's the point at which you probably can't make real high margin profits in the same way anymore but but you do you need some kind of structure and i think crypto is currently struggling a lot with the lack of structures yeah sense. i think i mean i think when you've got what was the phrase terra nullius this sort of notion that it's a sort of virgin territory which crypto is it's created something out of nothing and many people would argue it's still nothing <laughs> it's, it's created nothing out of nothing but but people are willing to yeah. buy nothing for, yes. for something and so you've got this sort of uh, something for nothing uh, yeah. model that some people are making a lot of money out of you know i mean arguably that that's the the ideal space if all you're interested in is making money because uh, it's the space where you you have maximum freedom and i actually think a lot of those early colonizations were precisely that you were given the maximum space I think what happens once it becomes properly regulated, once your East India Company is dragged under the British crown, you know, once you once you put that regulation in place, is this this second part of the purpose of regulation, which is the redistribution of wealth, kicks in. Mm. And so, you know, that's why you know when crypto is brought into the mainstream, some of what will happen is that the money will be taken from the crypto kings. 
and and distributed in ways whether that's paying for a regulator or top slicing it for certain things or paying corporate profit taxes or whatever it is so there is there's always i think uh a, a redistributive element once government steps in you you can see it in some of the internet regulation they're doing the the copyright part of the copyright thing was levies wasn't it it was sort of you know we're going to and and it's still going now part of the notion is uh, of copyright law now is if you're a social media company you must pay money and have it redistributed back to those copyright owners so that redistributed mechanism i think is a really important part of regulation someone will have lobbied Mm. government and said look when you regulate, we want a piece of the action. You know, take something and give it to us. I, I sort of think about this. Uh, you're, I think your two purposes are sequential when you're talking mm. about the safety of individuals and then the redistribution of resources. I think for the safety of individuals, it's actually also the robustness of a market, it's the preconditions yeah. of the, the rule of law, all of those things that need to be in the place, in place for something to, to be commercially addressable at all. Because mm. if you don't have that then it's sort of an everyone it's like it's a hobbesian version of everyone against everyone yeah. but if you get that then you have a period until you start the redistribution phase in which you can make significant profits and then the redistribution phase kicks in for any emerging technology and so i guess that to some extent i would argue that that crypto is struggling even with that first phase yeah. of trying to figure out you know what's what and is there any kind of because they're in this hobbesian leviathan state where it's really everyone against everyone one and anyone can start a coin and and it's like the it's a rerun of the early private currencies in the u.s that all failed yeah because they had no connection to the legal foundation of the economic system that's right and and then there is this sort of question i think um whether so i, so I, th- I think they there is a question whether they will get to the point where they're sufficiently powerful to go back to your original notion that they need to be brought in. So right. there's one model in which is the sort of mushroom model. It grows up overnight and it collapses overnight. So, yeah, yeah. so there's a model in which which crypto never it bumps along like it is now, but never really goes mainstream. Yeah. Uh, and then in that case, maybe there isn't this sort of driving need. I, for them, I mean, they don't. They're, they're okay. They're just sort of trading with people who are gamblers, and the, and they're sort of happy in their gambling world. There's another world in which they do want to go to the next level. In which case, you're right. They have an interest in it becoming orderly and and sorting the crypto sheep from the crypto goats. That there will be people who want to create sustainable long term businesses that are around in twenty or thirty years time, and those people will want regulation in order yeah. to be able and to be able to expand their market from the gamblers to the regular investors. They will want institutions, right? They, they, they would exactly. benefit from, for example, central bank digital currency being an institution yeah. they can build around in some way. That would be helpful. Yeah, I think. and then there's another group, I say, who I think are, uh, uh, no, keep away the dead hand of government. And and for that group, I think the idea is that they're, they're really comfortable in the gambling world, in the world yeah. where everyone's betting. And <clears throat> perhaps some of them would even say we'd rather stay smaller <laughs> than go in there. And actually, again, that's an interesting internet phenomenon there are you know some of the very strong digital rights people would argue that it's much better to be a smaller service that is not sufficiently powerful that regulators want to regulate it rather than become a bigger one that you know attracts everybody's attention so there's a sort of notion of for some people to be on the fringes in a small world I mean, it all starts small, <laughs> yeah. uh, but the normal dynamic is the small wants to become big. But I think actually within the tech space, there are some people who would rather stay small and it's, be left uh, alone. It's sort of almost a long tail phenomenon, although it's not further south in the long tail, but there's like segments in the tail that are quite profitable mm. and specific and niche and they can survive without being very, very large companies. I think yeah. that's right. So let's get back to this model that we're working with. We have one long sequence in which technology sort of slowly ends up being regulated over three decades more or less yeah three or four decades right and then you have the fast follow version where you have first copyright then privacy then arguably probably freedom of expression starts popping up because it's a more complex question yeah and, and i think that pattern is fascinating because i think that's exactly what you can see for example in the ai world today yeah because the fast followers if you're looking at what's happening right now you see the copyright discussion is up and running i am yeah. pretty sure that the privacy discussion is just 
just around the corner. The CNIL just set up a division. Uh, the French Data Protection Authority just set up a division for under um, for exploring data protection and artificial intelligence, uh, specifically dedicated to this. And I am also sure that the content issues are going to follow fast, uh, as we've seen when different chatbots are being reviewed right now. Yes. You know, can they say anything? How should we think about this? What is the what is the overall um, uh, leeway that we're happy to give them? And so it seems as if this is a repeat pattern that we see again and again. Uh, but then horizontal regulation seems to be, if you look at, for example, the AI example, horizontal regulation seems to be coming much earlier. But if you look at the AI Act as it stands yeah. now, that didn't have a clear corresponding analogy in the early internet legislation, yeah. did it? No, no. I, so I think... So Israel, a couple of things to tease out there. One is the fast follower regulation. I think there's some really interesting questions about whether or not that is the right model. Uh, and we could look at it actually for copyright, you know, rolling over some of the principles of copying CDs and DVDs to internet world has actually been part of the problem. It, the two, yeah. they, they are apples and pears. Equally, data protection, you know, data protection law originated the European version actually in the 1970s it was about paper filing cabinets that then sort of rolled into an OECD level discussion that then rolled into data protection and importantly law. it was between the citizen and the state I mean yeah. the idea was this notion that the state could collate information about people and if it had too perfect a picture of the citizen the asymmetry of power between the two would be too large. Today we call that e-government, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that that was sort of at least one of the original concerns behind the regional data protection act in Germany and yeah. the national one in Sweden that came in the seventies. Yeah, and it, and it was all on this notion of I mean, really, it was informed by the Second World War and fascist parties collecting sensitive personal data about people to use to harm them, yeah. and and so very rationally and sensibly, it was a reaction against yes. that. How do we prevent against that? And so if you look at the categories of sensitive personal data, for example, they include things like trade union membership, which yeah. is absolutely you know key if you're worried about fascists picking out trade union members. But other than that, it seems kind of anachronistic in a period where trade union membership is not, I think for most people, seen as like a yeah. major factor in your identity and other things are important. So you have this sort of hangover when you take legislation and you and you sort of, as you said, fast, sort of roll it over into a new domain, yeah. then I think there's some really interesting questions there about whether you not you wouldn't have been better off starting from scratch and saying, here's an would. internet I mean, yeah. data protection yeah, law. And, and it's interesting because if you... Uh, and I think, again, going back to the extremely high degree of organisation in the copyright industry, I think what they had was an international system that was rooted in the Berne Convention mm. and a series of mechanisms that they could use to immediately address what they perceived to be a change in, in production technology yeah and they'd been through it before right with exactly. with recordings uh, completely upending the performance world and yeah. you know with with different kinds of copyright problems and so i mean and it was so interesting yeah. to track from the 96 copyright treaty to the 98 digital millennium copyright to the yeah. 2001 copyright directive in europe and and all of these concepts were just being translated one-on-one -on -one, which i yeah. think is you're right there ended up being really troubling and it wasn't just you know, the one-on-one -on -one between CDs and MP3s, it was things like, you know, is caching making a yes. copy under copyright law? Yeah. Which to us today seems seems slightly absurd, yeah. but this was a huge deal at the time, I remember. Yeah. Well, look at the debate today of um, if somebody is sharing on social media links to a news article, then they need to pay the news article. Again, that's that's based on the notion of syndicated news articles that the social media side And the side notion is, of making available, which yeah, is the copyrights. Yeah. Exactly, and there's no notion of the reciprocity that the social media site is doing free distribution for the copyright owner that then you know uh, that didn't exist previously, and that the the social media site might might just say, well, in that case, we'll just ban your content, you know, if you don't, <laughs> because it's no real advantage to us. We think we're giving you a benefit. You think you're giving us a benefit. Well, let's let's find out by just not not doing it. And I think and the original system know. wasn't designed for that kind yeah. of a bipartite link. Exactly. Right? So yeah, licensing yeah. was a one way street effectively yes. you know i am licensing your content to show to other people yes exactly. um, so there's that so i think the real limitation that rollover but then the the second point you you sort of point out something like the ai act i think in a sense you know re recognize there's a political imperative to do something so i think i think yes. there's in some you know um legislation follows fashion and fashion uh, is influenced by current events and so you know, out there there is a lot of debate around ai yeah. It's still not clear 
what the harms are. It's still not clear who the winners and losers are, but it's very obvious, blinding obvious, it's going to have a profound impact. Therefore, we must put something on the statue book, I think is the feeling, but I don't think that's the, the end point. I mean, the end point is going to only come for AI regulation once there is real clarity about the harms. And, and that may evolve over time. It, it took a long time. Social media is just an interesting example because it took quite a long time for people to really zero in on what they thought the harms were. Yes. Uh, you know, and the harms include things like political speech to a much greater degree than I think anyone would have thought in the early days. Uh, and, and you know, now they're included under the banner of misinformation, disinformation. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of you know, the political importance of social media. So I think with AI, something had to be done. Otherwise, you know, the politicians would feel powerless and not, not part of it. But at the same time, they're still not entirely clear what needs to be done. And there's a, there's a bunch of different components in there. Um, there'll be safety components. And, and I actually think, again, if we look at the kind of regulation they're doing at the moment, I think things like access controls... Yeah. Seem you know know your customer access controls seems to be emerging as a consistent theme. So I can imagine a future sort of effort around AI regulation that says if you're running powerful AI systems, we the government insist that you register, collect information from your users, make that information available in sort of ways. Uh, act as a gatekeeper, prevent bad people from using your systems. You're going to have to define what good people and bad people are. And so you can see that sort of thing potentially emerging in a future uh, iteration. Um, There's certainly elements of uh, economic power uh, around foreign ownership and control, all of that, which you can see... You know, being That's already the present in the export controls discussion between the US and China, for example. Yeah. So I, I think there's a fair bit of that. And yeah. um, Joshua Gans and a couple of other economic professors have, have guessed that one of the things we will see down the road in their new book, Power and Prediction, is is almost FDA-like licensing regimes in in which if you have a really powerful system that's intended for a certain sector in which there are possible harms, you will have to show that the system fulfills some basic requirements before you're licensed to actually deploy the system in that sector. So I think you can can see that down the road, but I think you're right. And I wanted to sort of prod on this issue of horizontal regulation coming early because I, I wonder if it's the case that a society can be in an intense regulatory phase for technology and then out of an intense regulatory phase, and that, that when you're in the when you're in the mix, so to say, when you're mm. when when the when the debate has heated up, and you have the DSA, you have the DMA, then any new technology that comes along just gets swept up by that enormous attention being paid to technology right now, and so you you end up compressing that three to four decade cycle into to a much shorter period of time yeah i, th- I think i think that's certainly true and i say it's that feeling of look if everyone's talking about it and everyone's saying something's critical and a regular and a, what, a set of politicians does not do anything they look powerless and so we saw moves around when misinformation disinformation became a thing we saw moves around that and and it doesn't have to be formal regulation so misinformation mm-hmm. disinformation it was codes of practice, but something had to be done uh, because it's important to, in, in society and, and otherwise you look impotent if you don't do anything. And I can be hardly cynical and, and sort of reverse the perspective. I can say that it's, this is all very fine and you're discussing this from a rational perspective where mm. new technology comes out, power is redistributed, there is a question of safety, there is a question of the economic redistribution of resources. But really, what regulation really is, if you look at it, is regulating a certain subset of companies that happen to be not in Europe. Yeah. And so it's not regulating emerging technologies at all. It's actually regulating an industry in which these technologies feature as a part, but the technologies themselves are not the object of regulation. It's the companies that are. What would you say to that? That's, yeah. a, that's a cynical view, yeah. admittedly. No, but... I, th- I think that's a really important part of the redistribution element. That, you know, what, what a... What a government is interested in using regulation for is to get resources for the people in its territory. And then within that people in its territory, there'll be certain favoured groups and disfavoured groups. And politics, again, is like who the winners and losers are will depend on politics. But if the money or the resources seem to be going from your territory out to a group of winners in another territory, 
that's clearly a massive drive for regulation. I think that's been behind, certainly for Europe, you know, we talked about this before, but it's behind a lot of the internet regulation. It would be very different. There, there would still be a push to regulation, but it'd be very different if the tech companies were inside Europe. And I think American approach is different because the winners and the losers, if you like, are all in America. Yeah. Uh, they, they have both, but they have winners. If you look at a lot of big tech, it, the perception is that the the losers are in Europe and the winners are in America. Uh, and and so you get all these different sort of power dynamics. I think there's one of, you know, we look at we look at how you want to redistribute. Well, there's there's EU plus US plus UK versus China. Uh, there's you know EU versus UK. There's uh, 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 EU versus and UK versus US. And so all of these dynamics depend on where the companies are absolutely and where those flows of wealth are seen as going. Mm. So and we're going to use regulation to try and affect those flows of wealth. So we could go back to our original model of the four decades, uh, decades of, of sort of evolution, and and we could propose an alternative mental model just to toy around with, which would be that what is actually happening is not the regulation of technology, but the regulations of emerging companies. And so companies that are small enough are not yet the um, the object of regulation. We want to encourage them because we want them to grow and become big. And so we're in 1994. We have some hope that Europe will actually also have these big internet companies because we did really well on GSM and we had mobile phone companies and so let's have all of these small companies become big companies and then we're back down and what happened was that you had a couple of really large companies emerge in one economy but not so much in the other and so we started to regulate those large companies because company size was the trigger of regulation rather than the maturity of technology use yes maybe yeah I think uh, I think that's right so I mean if we think of yeah, regulation is about regulating people yes and companies from a legal perspective are people they're, they're big big people <laughs> yes. I mean you know, they're, but we're, we want to regulate that entity as though it were a person we want to you know there is a an, an, a legal entity a legal person called a company that that is taking resources that is seen as responsible for the harms uh, that is sort of has a, a personality and that's who we're often trying to regulate. That's our target. And then, then we might regulate the the technologies by proxy. So I think yeah. I actually I think it happens at both levels. So it happens at both. Levels, I think the primary yeah. target often is that, and and often you then try and regulate the specific technology through the company. But and this model would be interesting to explore because with that we would predict that if a region or a country thinks that it will not see any companies developing the technology at hand, they're going to be much faster at regulating it if it's only companies in another region that yeah. they believe will actually regulate it. So hence, going back to the AI Act, Europeans saying that they don't believe, and, and this has been repeatedly said by European representatives, that they don't believe they have the capacity to to um, develop AI at the same pace as is developed in China or the US, right. would incentivize a much compressed regulation period in uh, some way, right? And I think we do see that. And so, you know, we very much, I think, uh, a lot of the time on our podcast, sort of look at it through the lens of EU, UK US regulation that's yeah. where we're coming from and and I think there is a reasonable logic to say that that because most of the internet wealth is in that zone yeah. that, that that sort of has a particular effect but if you look and we both dealt with it in our respective roles at tech companies you would see countries outside of those markets who had no dog in the fight who, who had no domestic internet industry much much quicker to regulate actually yeah. and there are lots of examples but you tended not to take it seriously if you're candid you, you kind of said well that's fine they want to regulate to ban a technology but but it's not a big market and therefore you know we don't have to really pay a lot of attention to it compared with something that's going through the US Congress or the European Union institutions so, uh, mm. but but I think to your point that's exactly right that countries that do not see themselves as major players in the online space I, certainly my observation is that they are much much quicker and more comfortable to go we'll just ban this or regulate that or control that now whether or not they can enforce that yeah. is a secondary question but their willingness to regulate seems to your point exactly to to reflect the fact they don't feel they need to spend a lot of time looking at different competing interests it's one-sided everybody yes. domestically says this is a bad thing that we should regulate and nobody domestically is saying slow down <laughs> so we'll just rush ahead come to the eu come to the uk come to the us there's, there'll be a more balanced debate india 
be a more balanced debate, I think, you know, because there's a domestic, a strong domestic industry. China, yeah. different world again in terms of how that debate plays out, but they are thinking of, you know, uh, looking after domestic interests and export industries as well. So when we look at the regulation of emerging technologies, what we what we really are what we really want to look at is the regulation of the network of companies and technologies and how they connect and also how they're distributed geographically and politically. Because if we look at that, then we get a sense for what this time scale looks like. The the sort of how compressed, how fast, how how long the negotiation of this new regulatory environment will be in, in certain ways. And I, I think that's an interesting perspective because it forces us to see that regulation is is it's uh, the, the ideal model, the platonic model we have in our mind is it, here's the technology, society looks at it and says, okay, this is what we will do with it. We will let it free you, we will not let it free you, we will let it be used or not be used. This it actually goes back to a, a legend from Plato. There's a yeah. really interesting story in Plato's Phaedrus where, where Socrates tells the story of Thamus and Toth. Where, where King Thamus is the king of all of Egypt and Toth is this ingenious inventor god. And the way technology diffusion in Egypt goes on, Socrates lets us know, is that Toth invents something and then he sort of pops over to Thamus and says, hey, look at this cool thing, this is the gadget I invented. And Thamus looks at it and says, yes, you can distribute that to the Egyptian people and they shall yeah. all enjoy the fruits of your inventiveness, oh Toth. Or he says, ah, not so much, that's a very bad idea. And interestingly, the example Socrates has is writing. Yes. Because Toth then invents writing, comes to Thamus and says, oh, look what I did. This is really neat. And people will be able to write all kinds of things down and share, etc. And Thamus goes like, oh, no, no. <laughs> that's a very bad idea. Yeah. They will think they're wise, whereas they only will have the resemblance of wisdom and so on. Yeah. And so there's, there's this whole idea of technology diffusion that is technology centered that just is wrong. Because yeah. it's this, this other thing, this network of companies and technologies interplaying in their different ways. Right? Yeah. Although I think that myth is interesting because you know that decision that the king made in that case was a power related one yes so i think it is to the point you know it's that that's the element we miss out technology is not regulated for its own sake it's regulated because of the impact it has on society that that attracts the attention of those who have the power to regulate and so yes i think technologies almost always will start spreading organically in the same way as i say even things that we now think of as orderly like colonizations happened to a certain extent organically yeah. and then at a certain point they, if they're successful in, in terms of scaling we can argue about what success means but, but I mean, if, they, if they grow and scale to a yeah. certain point that they start to have material impacts then at that point the, the debate kicks in so it's always going to be following that following the sort of impact and then yes who you regulate will be the entities that now control the technology versus you know regulating the technology in and of itself mm. so yes we don't regulate banking computer systems we regulate banks yes. who in turn have to build compliant computer systems and interestingly in our space i think sometimes there's a tendency to want to regulate the technology yes which is a mistake actually it's uh, it's much better to think about the entities that are rolling out that technology development and the intended effect and impact you i mean yeah. one of the I, I keep coming back to this but i think one of the most uh, it's always interesting to discuss failures where yeah. did the legislative intent break down and i think one of the clearest examples of legislative intent breaking down is the e-signatures directive in the yeah. european union where the idea was exactly this to regulate the new technology to enable it that's you know one of the scary words we should avoid yeah uh, to enable this technology and there was this really strict regulation with a technical appendix that each country got to to sort of define on its own effectively almost guaranteeing a fragmentation of the market and arguably it held back the commercial rollout of electronic signatures for quite some time in the european union yeah. whereas the u.s example essentially was if you intended to sign this thing and you did it electronically then it's a signature yeah, yeah. functional yeah. equivalence you wanted to do something here that you would have wanted to do on paper we're good with that yeah. functional equivalence right and so this is where the idea of technology neutrality also hides in the middle somewhere that legislation should ultimately be technology neutral and should yeah. look at the impacts and intended uses and what you're trying to do but that is so hard when technology is so much in the public eye isn't it it, it is actually the signature one is a classic yes i thought i don't know if you've noticed it but i noticed that uh, when people pull out their bank cards these days 
they not only have not signed the back of the bank card, but they have the sticker still on that kind of says, here's how to activate the yeah. bank card. Because <laughs> the bank card is meaningless. It's simply a thing that you put into your phone now yeah. to use that. And, and we've sort of evolved very quickly from the idea, this notion that this little scrawl that you did was like material in terms of a financial transaction. We sort of shifted all the way. And you're, you're right, things like DocuSign and those products that I use. I mean, the, the point should be, yes, w- um, if ever it comes to court... Have you got sufficient evidence to show that the person consented to something or agreed to something? And the fact that they logged in and I recorded their IP address and all of that is fine. The fact that there's a squiggle on a piece of paper, you know, it's like... Um, But that's (laughs) the point. A regulation that said we've got a squiggle on a paper, we need to replicate a squiggle on a paper. <laughs> is the wrong equivalence. Right? Yeah. We need something that does... What, why did we ask for the squiggle on the paper? So that, so that we could haul you in front of the court and say, was that your squiggle? Yes. And you either confirmed it because you were scared of the power of the court or you lied, in which case we'd have you for perjury. Yeah. You know, but that was the point. The squiggle's not important. It's the, it's the fact that we've got something the that function. we can ask you. The we function. Looking for so, the, yeah, so there's a lot of that. So there's a replication sometimes of of trying to roll uh, it's the classic and we all argue about sticking the e in front of everything yeah. Yeah. you know once you e sign your e signature like you know you're going down the wrong track if you're saying what's the thing we use to provide sufficient proof that a party agreed to a contract and that sufficient proof could be 101 different things. And, that, you and know, it's, it's such an interesting point because to some degree we underestimate the, the constancy of the practices we're involved in. We still sign things, we just do it differently, right? Yeah. But the signing practice is pretty much a sustained thing that's been around for hundreds of years. It's just that the methods of signing have in some ways changed and we just need to update in order to, to make sure that that's uh, done. So that's, that's an argument for, for extending existing practices and not regulating exactly how those practices are performed, but rather regulate when they break in different ways. And that leads back to a model. So there are many different models you can mm. use when you're thinking about regulating technology. And I don't, I, you will remember this. In the beginning, of when we discussed the 9546 EC, the first data protection directive was put in place in the European Union, there was a wild debate before that directive was put in place about what model should be used for uh, personal data. Yes. One was the use model, where every use of personal data should be regulated, sort of oriented towards regulating every process that collected or in some way uh, processed personal data but then a lot of people actually argued for something called an abuse model which mm. was saying that you know if you collect personal data and you do bad stuff with it you should be held responsible for the bad stuff and we should figure out what the bad stuff is by increasingly relying on courts and on data protection authorities that can outline bad stuff and if you're doing bad stuff you will suffer for it but the use model won yes and that's sort of where we ended up why do you think that was? Uh, I, I mean, I, th- I think in the case of data protection, it's because it gets tied into this notion of a fundamental right. And so if I have a fundamental right over the use of my data, you know, then I must be asked about every use of the data and I must consent to the use of the data because that's what you do with a fundamental right. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, I'm, I'm giving somebody the keys to my car. I, you know, we can't just assume that they're okay using my car. I have to go through an act of giving them the keys to my car because it's... All it's use is abuse, essentially. It, essentially, unless, unless you can absolutely demonstrate the use was consented to. And actually, to your point about sort of form and function, we're playing that out now in the debates around what constitutes consent for the use of the data. Yeah. Uh, from... You know, if you know, somebody signed up to a service, it's pretty obvious what the service does. Therefore, they can say they have consent would be an argument. Some people would make through to, no, no, unless they've ticked 10 boxes agreeing to everything, they haven't consented. And not so, even boxes. They should have answered a set of tests uh, so that um, you can divine their explicit consent through their competence. Yeah, yeah. So I think, and I think that all stems from this notion of, you know, this data is is uh, fundamental to me. I have a fundamental right of control over it. And any, any use of it is a big deal, as opposed to having a sort of more graduated uh, view, which says, look, there are a lot of uh, fairly innocuous uses of the data that I may or may not, you know, care about. There are some clear abuses. So, so, uh, and so to your point about the other alternative model is to say, look, if it's innocuous... Let's not worry about it. Uh, and let's not put a great big machinery in place. Let's worry about it if it's abusive. And yeah. if it's abusive, 
then at that point, you know, my fundamental right kicks in. But it's it's more a, a right to be protected rather than a right to determine every use of the data. And that's quite an important philosophical divide. Yeah. And then is there also a difference in regulating technology between civil law systems and common law systems in the sense yeah. that the, the civil law systems rely so heavily on the regu- on the legislation and never on the litigation, whereas common law systems actually leave it up to the courts to figure out yeah. how things work? Because you could see that an abuse model would require an active court system and a a fairly litigious populace, right, in order to, to get the cases in front of the court. Whereas if, if you don't believe that's what you have, you go for the civil law system, which essentially would be, we'll regulate everything so it's very clear what can and cannot be done, and then we'll put some kind of agency in uh, in oversight of yeah. the whole process. I, I mean, that's right, that's quite difficult. So one thing that <laughs> struck me, I always, I always found interesting working at Facebook, was that the, the number of issues that had never been tested in court under data protection or that Facebook you know, in 20, whatever, 15, 16, 17, was the first company to actually say no to a regulator. And the regulator said, you must do this. You must have a password that has 23 characters, uh, you know, none repeating them, whatever. The, The regulators would say, we've looked at data protection law, the civil law, and our interpretation of the civil law is this. And actually, the tradition in a lot of countries was, well, the regulator said, that's what it is. You just do it. You don't argue. And Facebook would argue and say, no, we think we've got consent to do this thing, you know, implicit consent or consent under contract. And the number of cases that ended up going to the European Court of Justice. Yes. (laughs) And I was looking again, this law has been in place since 1995, 20 years. And literally, we're the first people. And some would say, that's because you're so evil. And you were defying it. It wasn't just the first company to look at it and genuinely say, we've looked at the regulation and we interpret it this way. And in the US, you're within two years of the 95 director coming out of the US, there would have been a thousand court cases yeah. that would have gone and would have precisely defined, you know, what does consent look like and what doesn't it look like. And helpfully, I mean, some of the court cases that interpreted the 98 Digital Millennium Copyright Act actually interpreted it as, as giving room for companies to devise different kinds of protective technologies, which Sorry. then led to the content ID YouTube, arguably, at least was a contributing factor to. So so I think that there's, there's something about this. We, mm. we often talk about the success of legislation. We sort of try to figure out what would success look like in five years. Years. I think there's actually an argument to be made that success for a particular piece of legislation, especially in the technology space, would be for it to have been repeatedly challenged and clarified in court to the extent that you actually strike a balance between the intent at the time of the legislation and the evolving nature of the technology and as, it, as it develops. Yeah, I think, you, yeah, so success for me on various dimensions, the, the number one criteria is... is are citizens better off? <laughs> yes, <laughs> like that should, you know, be, uh, yeah. that should be the the top. But then, sort of under underpinning that should be, and is it clear what everybody has to do? Like, is mm-hmm. it is it uh, being applied in a sort of fairly arbitrary way, or is it being applied in a consistent way? Do people know what they have to do? Um, and and knowing what they have to do, having that clarity, are we again clear that it's the best possible regulation, or could improvements be made? But absent the clarity you can't really make a good evaluation and that clarity is often missing. I to think, yeah. you know, the latest iteration of data protection law in Europe is still going through that, but it's happening more quickly this time. Yes. Uh, within five years or so, we'll, we'll have tested most of these things. Um, but they're still going through the process of trying to, to clarify exactly what that law means and what people have to do. And through that process of clarification, it may turn out there are some things that are not working as intended. Yeah. Uh, and, and they didn't want to work that way. Actually, given the example that we're all familiar with is the transatlantic data flows. Yes. You know, I don't think it was the intention of the lawmakers to prohibit transatlantic data flows. And yet they've crafted a set of regulations that when they get tested, often end up striking down the mechanisms that were created under the law for transatlantic data flows. So again, it's only through that process of testing it you can't leave it uncertain. <laughs> no, and testing it is actually making it more robust in some way. You know, legislation, if it really works, should be anti-fragile. It should be made stronger by the tests you yeah. you put it to. And so I think that's something that uh, that we could do more of in Europe, where we could sort of not necessarily go to the full litigiousness of the U.S. as a society, but we could yeah. certainly be uh, slightly more prone to take things to court to clarify them, because I think that actually makes for a clearer market. I think it makes for clearer rights. I think it makes for an understanding 
understanding of uh, the balances that legislation inherently needs to strike. Yeah, I think just the counterbalance of that, though, is um, that that I think, you know, again, good regulation, the internet space is constantly evolving, online services are constantly evolving, and therefore the standard should continue to improve. This is, this is technology generally. Again, I've used this analogy of cars, that yeah. every year cars get a bit safer, yep. and the target is to make sure that fewer people die each year, yeah. not zero, but fewer. Yeah. Uh, we don't try and make them 100% safe overnight. We accept a certain level of risk, but we try and make them continually safer. Um, and that's what I think needs to happen with internet as well. So the, the, the only risk of the judgments is, you know, that when they're not able to cope with the fact that things are still evolving. So you have a judgment that says, data protection law says you must need to use this consent mechanism. And then it turns out that next year, a there's a better consent mechanism which will achieve the objective you want in an improved way but you're now stuck because <laughs> yeah. case law it's says a, it it's must a be ceiling this. of floor problem right do you yeah. establish a floor you can grow from or a ceiling that holds things back and i think actually the the problem is probably that i think legislation too often presents a fictional ceiling that people can't go beyond and and that stops you also from getting into these new consent mechanisms. But if you had some kind of uh, basic requirements set out in a good, and you know, there are good and bad uh, mm. decisions from court, to be sure. But if you have a good decision from a court, it sets out this floor that you can build on. And you can see that the new technology could be accommodated within the the framework set out by yeah. that floor in some sense. So there, there is. There's, and there's also a constitutional question, which is when do you need to go back to legislators to get yes. new primary legislation? And again, I'm, I'm torn. That's, that's legislators like oh you know <laughs> people should come back and, and get them but again from a practical point of view um i think if you're you know there's a point at which if you're not radically departing if you're if you're still working towards the original objective set in the regulation and you there's no radical departure from what was intended in the regulation there has to be a what they call it in eu law margin of appreciation there has to be a, a sort of margin that says look within that framework and, and the primary legislation should say this we're, we're giving you your marching orders we want you to make this thing safer we want you to deal with terrorist content so we don't want you to take those powers and use them to deal with something that's not terrorism because we said terrorist content but you know in two or three years time how you define what the priority threats are in terms of terrorist content of course it's going to be different from today yeah. and we don't need you to come back and get primary legislation again to do that the tools will change over time if now there's a reliable scanning tool that wasn't available of course we want you regulator to to encourage take up of that scanning tool again yeah. you shouldn't have to come back if it if that was the thing we intended but you want to radically change what you do or you want to to you know introduce something that was wildly different from anything we ever had in mind then come back but again there should be a reasonable conversation and this is so hard when it comes to merging technologies i mean i think one of the one of the observations when you get this really compressed timeline when when a technology is emerging as it's being regulated and i think you could argue that this is partly true for crypto it's partly true for ai for example then then you get all of these concepts thrown into the law that are really interesting right now and yeah. those concepts are concepts that that they they look like they need regulating but they're not quite quite well defined and they might very well be completely redundant down the line i mean if you go back to the early internet if you go back to 1998 99 one of the absolute hottest things regulators were interested in this you know researchers academics engineers everyone was interested in push technology yes yeah. and push technology was this notion that you would have an app on your desktop and you would push news and perhaps even music or entertainment yeah. to this app and this app would be your sort of one-stop shop for everything you wanted off the internet because the browser was just for you know weird stuff nobody was browsing yeah. anyway and so the push technology thing would be right and you could imagine in a compressed timeline that regulators would have gone like push technology we need to regulate push technology yeah. and Today, you can't find anyone who knows what it is. Oh. Nobody remembers these apps. Nobody has any idea of what it looked like or why push technology was such a big deal. And I do think that we see some of that happening in um, in the way that AI is being regulated now, yeah. for example. The notion of regulating general purpose AI systems yeah. is is really interesting because it's, it, it's, sort of, it's being invented more or less at the same time as it's regulated. And that goes back to your question of how do you strike the balance between what's in the legislation, what's in the regulator's enforcement, and when you go back to regulation again. And yeah. the tiering that is tremendously hard yeah. in an emerging technology yeah. as it's emerging. As you described that, it reminds me of the other thing we've talked about, which is regulation of encryption. Yes. Which keeps popping up for the same reason. It's like there's something in this encryption thing that we should be regulating, but actually 
it's, it's rarely about encryption the technology it's about the things that people might be doing <laughs> yes. that happen to use encryption and once you start focusing on the things that people may be doing actually there are all different ways of approaching yeah. those and tackling those so so if what you're worried about is is um, child abuse material being circulated or secret terrorist conversations and so on the the messaging platforms you can work with the messaging platforms to try and deal with those abuses yeah you don't need to go straight for the encryption because even if everything was unencrypted there's no security service in the world could read all the stuff anyway no. so you still ha would have to go back to the platforms and say help me look at this stuff so so you're sort of back in that cycle yeah. so it's another yeah you're right there are things where almost invariably i think if they zero in on the technology that's probably uh missing the point unless you can show me yeah. That it's the technology that's the problem, as opposed to some a harmful abuse of that talent. Which yeah, and praise where praise is due. I think the early version of the AI Act from the Commission actually was exactly this. It was yeah. looking at risk levels. Is this a high risk system? Is this not a high risk system? And it was then trying to figure out, you know, are there harms associated with different uses of the system? And then, then of course, because the thing was so hot to the mechanism you described earlier, something must be done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, you now saw sort of the, the dilution of that original mental model into more and more specific technical detail, frankly, into yeah. higher technical resolution which creates this problem this tension that you can see in the encryption debate as well i think yeah and it's and it's it's truly hard because i think i think there is um there is a, a i think there's like a an honest intent to get things right but whenever you see that you're changing your view on what's in legislative texts every time there's a new news cycle you're probably at the wrong resolution yeah i think so and i think what's changed again just to describe the ai Regulations making me think this. I think what's changed is, look, technology is is almost invariably dual purpose yes. uh, or multi purpose, but it can be used for good things and bad things. Yes, you know, you can have good AI bots and bad AI bots, depending on how you define good or bad. But you can have good social media users and bad social media users. And I think what's changed in the same way you can have good car drivers, frankly, and bank, you know, you know, people who drive cars to go to work and people who drive cars as getaway cars from a bank job. And I think what's changed is that in historically the car people would say, look, we just build the cars and we sell them and some of them will get used by bank robbers. Not much we could do about that. That's your problem, government. Our problem is just to make the cars. I think what's interesting about information technology specifically is that that argument doesn't wash and that's what social media social media said look we've just got a news feed it gives people more of what they want it's neutral and if you're a good person you get more good content and if you're a person looking for bad stuff you get more bad content but we're just neutral we're like the car manufacturer we don't you know and what the regulators are saying is no <laughs> you've got to, you know you car manufacturer have got to make sure that bank robbers don't get hold of your cars and if they do you've got to help us catch them and stop them uh, fit you know cheap devices in the bank robbers cars so we can just flick the switch and turn them off it's the it's roughly the equivalent of that and i think that's what again they they sort of have in mind for ai is knowing it's going to be very powerful and and imagining there are going to be good bots and bad bots they're going to not accept a position in which you say, well, we've just, we just made lovely algorithms. We've just made lovely, like, you know, learning models, whatever. They're going to say, whoever the businesses are, coming back to what you said earlier, we're going to use the pinch points of the companies. You companies have to control access. You have to take responsibility for the bad uses of your technology in some way. Yeah. And, we're, and we're going to drive you in that direction. I, the cleanest, and it's, and it's so true for encryption as well, the ultimate dual-use technology, way back when in the end yeah. of the 90s, we were discussing the Vassenaar Agreement and the fact that encryption could help you know, abused spouses to communicate and get out of an abusive relationship. could also be used by terrorists, but it's yeah. the ultimate dual-use thing. And, and the encryption folks would, would essentially rely on what, what has become known as the NRA argument, which yeah. is that encryption doesn't kill people, well, yeah. people kill people, yeah. or weapons, you know, guns don't kill people people kill people is the yeah. the ultimate nra argument but but it's interesting because when you look at the nra argument the way that government has dealt with this is to say that okay there are some limitations on how you can design your guns 
you can't design them in such a way that they're easily you know turned into weapons of mass murder in different ways right and and i think for your car example if i was building a car designed solely for getting away from bank jobs with like yeah. dark bulletproof yeah. and, and that's how i marketed and sold that car yeah. i think i would have a problem right because yeah. the government will go like well this this can't work for you but so there's something about there's something about the design where we where we sort of come into where's the sign of almost all technology and specifically technology that can be used in dual ways where where sort of government wants to have a say now where this becomes really problematic is that when it comes to emerging technologies the use space is largely unexplored you don't know how this thing exactly. can be used so Arguing that it should be designed in a certain way as to exclude certain uses will always be something you do slightly, you know, randomly because you don't know the use space. Yeah. I but, think that's what's so hard for regulating, or that's one aspect of what's so hard with yeah. regulating emerging technology. But after the end, so, so interesting that, yeah, um, guns don't kill people, people kill people. It, it, it doesn't wash in Europe. And again, this is interesting to look it's at the, true. the example true. transatlantically. Yes, in the US they'll do that. And I think the tech companies had more success you know pursuing that argument uh and actually first amendment kind of supports that that notion that we just produce a social media site there are some bad people the who use it 230 was explicitly CDA, exactly. based on it, right? you go after the bad people yeah. don't go after us europe in the same way that we we don't accept that, that, that guns don't kill people we're much more quick and happy to regulate the use of firearms uh, and to put much more blame on those manufacturers we'll still do we'll we'll do that and i think that has rolled over to our, our willingness to approach tech regulation. But the direction of travel for both Digital Services Act and UK Online Safety Bill is very clearly saying, yeah, you're a, you're a gun maker. You know, we are going to hold you responsible for whether the bad people get your guns or not. Uh, you're you're going to have to do all the mental health checks before they can you can sell one. You're going to have to put in place all of these different things. Effectively, a lot of the conditions look like licensing conditions that you would yeah. apply to any yeah, yeah. dangerous technology. And how far we go with that is still a matter of debate. That's very much the attitude they're, they're taking. And I think that is the default mode now for technology is, yeah, um, guns do kill people. And it's up to the gun manufacturers to make sure the bad people don't get hold of them. <laughs> like yes. That is pretty much sums up our attitude to it's, technology. It's really interesting. You're right. <laughs> there is, there is, there's a lot of truth to, to that difference too. I like that. Yeah. And so, um, so wrapping up then, mm. we've talked about the regulation of emerging technologies. We've said that it's clear that they're regulated in this network of technologies, companies, regions, power aspects, aspects of distribution, of wealth, but also of safety and and, and sort of boiled it down to this really complex equation of things. But one of, one of the things I wanted to sort of end on is that there is a, there's, another, there's another aspect of this, which is, of course, regulating access to technology, yes. which we saw in the encryption case that we raised earlier, where the idea from the American side was to essentially make sure nobody else had access to strong encryption through uh, the imposition of export controls. And export controls and other tools like this uh, sometimes come up in the discussion around quantum computers or really powerful mm. chips, etc. Um, so, so that's another aspect of uh, regulating emerging technologies. Do you think it will become more or less important in uh, the future to regulate the access to technologies? I think more, and, but again, qualifying that. So absolute access to information technology is like it's a fool's errand to think you can regulate that because the code is code and code is out there so no individual license for people to log uh, on to the internet like you would uh, have a gun license yeah i don't think so but what you can do is put more and more friction in place for for certain people to do certain things and so I, what i think you can say is for the people who've got the big distribution networks and that's so that's what you're seeing you're seeing this in in was it european talk is vlops very large online platforms or in uk speakers category one you're seeing these distinctions saying look basically that the bigger the platform the more responsibility you need to take for making sure you keep bad people and bad stuff off mm. and so and that 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 means putting friction in place you know let's not imagine the regulation is going to mean no bad people open accounts on big social media sites but the social media sites are going to put in place orders of magnitude more friction than they would do absent the regulation yeah. uh, because they're going to be held liable if they get if they don't and so i think that's the direction we're going in and again i think that will apply to other forms of technology you can imagine that for crypto the next thing on crypto is going to be know your customer checks yeah which is again it's not an absolute bar but it's a frictionful mechanism for ai you know large providers of powerful ai platforms 
there, there is a sort of rationing factor because it costs money. We all forget that, but it costs money to run a big query. But but beyond that, I think there might be some regulated requirement uh, yeah. to make sure that you know it's not. Um, ISIS <laughs> uh, typing into chat GPT how do I you know make better bombs or whatever you know it's like yeah, there's yeah. going to be something that that says you know this is what you must keep off now what who precisely you have to apply the friction for for and what the harms are is still TBD because we don't know I think with social media now Europeans and you and UK have sort of zoomed in now on where they think the harms are and they've got plenty of evidence young people accessing self-harm content, promotion of terrorism, extremism, blah, 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 misinformation, disinformation. I think for AI, that's still to be determined, for cryptocurrency still to a certain extent to be determined uh, as to what specific harms you're trying to manage for. But a primary mechanism is to make anyone who's a significant provider of that technology control access. That's like a very obvious... and, And you do that as well by also creating for them a certain amount of liability for yes. the abuse. So if, if you're now liable for the bad bots using your technology, uh, then then you're doubly incentivized. It may be specifically you're told you must have access controls and then you're given liability. Well, then you're going to kind of keep the bad bots off or try and keep the people who would create bad bots away from your technology. So in addition to the use and abuse models, the access model is is one that sort of provides a general envelope to, to the technology. I mean, we see it. We see it sort of appearing in regulation and and I it looks like it's here to stay. So it seems like a pretty obvious place for regulators to turn to because then they can use the mechanism of the third party the companies again <laughs> they use the companies to do law enforcement for them yeah. and again parallels in the real world it's like certainly uk law's gone in this direction that it's employers and landlords who have to do the immigration checks when mm. somebody wants to get a job or rent a house you know it's, it's exporting the state function to them but they've determined that access control by by those employers and landlords is a more efficient way of them as one who has done this, I can I can, uh, done I that, can argue yeah. that it's quite efficient. It's quite an so, efficient, yes, effective yeah. way of doing it. So it's not yeah. it's not just that it's a sort of generalized yeah. mechanism of externalizing work to companies. Excellent. Okay, we will wrap there, and yeah. uh, next session we think we will talk more about the craft. Uh, but you can find this episode on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. And thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you.